1: Welcome everyone to episode 80 of True Blue Crime. My name's Sean and with me as always is my co-host Chloe. How are you?
2: Hi, we're back. Do you always get that urge? <laughs> after? <the> t- <laughs> I think everything in my brain is linked to a movie, but I always want to say that after a bit of a break, even if it's like two weeks, but we're back.
1: I'm glad you got that <laughs> out of your system. Yes, it's good to be back. <laughs> uh, for those who uh, were wondering where we'd been and they're not on our socials, um, uh, my wife and I did welcome another baby into the world, so we've had a few weeks off to settle in. Uh, but we're back now, and we've got some Patreon shout outs, Chloe.
2: Yes. Uh, thank you to everyone who signed up while we're away. I'll make my way through these over the next little while. Thank you so much, and welcome to Joe, Frank, Robert, Looney, Hannah, Sarah, Mari, Maddie, Trebsy, Abby, Michelle, Ellie, Jacqueline, Alice. Kayla, Andrew, and the big red dog.
1: The big red dog. Thank you very much, everyone. Much appreciated.
2: The case we are talking about today contains graphic descriptions and discusses sexual assault, both of which can be triggering for some people. So please look after yourself and exercise self care when listening to this episode.
1: 15th of February, 1988. Huntingdale, southeast of Perth. Western Australia. Nicole awoke in her bed, her boyfriend beside her showing some affection. He'd arrived in the early hours, nestled in next to her and put his hand over her mouth. That's when Nicole realised it wasn't her boyfriend. It was someone else. She grabbed his face and dug her fingernails in hard and the man jumped up from the bed. He was tall and wearing a long, light-coloured silk kimono. Nicole screamed for her father in the next room, and the man fled from the house. Nicole called the police and they attended, but the intruder had escaped, leaving behind just one clue as to his identity, a semen-stained white and apricot-coloured kimono. Into a police evidence box it went, and there it stayed, for 28 years, until the man was finally identified. In 1988, the Prowler targeted a number of homes within the suburb of Huntingdale, with nine victims in total reporting occurrences to the police. They experienced varied versions of the attack on Nicole, which isn't her real name but a pseudonym, with people reporting seeing a figure wearing women's nighties, dressing gowns, and in one instance, wearing a pair of women's underwear on his head. One local resident, Liz Kirkby, had just moved to the Huntingdale area and she'd heard of this snowdropper who'd been stealing bras and undies off locals' clotheslines, but she thought little of it. Weirdos were everywhere. Even the telecom guy who'd installed her phone line was a bit weird and made her feel uncomfortable.
2: On Saturday the 8th of October 1988, Liz arrived home from work. She had a shower and was getting ready for bed around 9pm, When she stepped out of the shower, she noticed a man in her toilet. He had on a woman's nightie and underwear over his head with his eyes exposed. Liz thought it was some kind of joke at first, but it soon became obvious it wasn't. The man rushed towards her and slammed her against the wall, which fractured Liz's skull. He then began to punch her. Liz fought back hard and kneed the intruder in the groin.
1: He ran out the back door in retreat, jumped over the fence and was gone into the night. Liz went into the kitchen and got a knife, returning to the door in case the attacker came back, but he didn't. Police attended and took down Liz's report. She was badly injured, with two black eyes and covered in bruises on her back and head, and her face was very swollen. But police were unable to identify the offender, and Liz was largely left with a feeling of suck it up and move on, something more common in the 1980s than today. The Huntingdale Prowler seemingly ceased his crimes in the time after this, and while police had the kimono and some latent fingerprints from one of the crime scenes, they didn't catch him.
2: But while things got quieter in Huntingdale, they didn't in the broader region. Between the late 80s and early 90s, there were more than 20 reports, potentially up to 40, made to police from young women within the Claremont and Cottesloe vicinity who had been stalked, pounced upon or groped, with attempts to drag them into cars and sexually assault them. In March of 1990, a woman jogging through Kings Park was raped by a man wearing a mask.
1: In another incident, a woman was walking home late at night and she was stripped and almost raped in Roe Park. Also in Roe Park in 1987, a woman was attacked and forced to perform oral sex on the offender, but she bit down hard on her attacker's penis, which sent him running away, bleeding profusely. In 1992, two women were sexually assaulted near Swanbourne train station, which is one stop from Claremont, after they walked home from central Claremont at night. And in 1994, there were two attempts to drag women from their cars in Stirling Road, near to the train subway, both times the women fought back and escaped.
2: None of this was publicised. Police didn't link these reports, didn't launch an operation, didn't tell the local paper to put out a warning. And none of these occurrences were linked to those in Huntingdale from the years gone by. Young people, by and large, had no idea about these crimes. And this brings us to February 1995, to a young woman who, just the same, had no real idea about this offending over the last few years.
1: It was a Saturday, a hot summer's evening, and Lisa had been out in Claremont, hitting up the dance floor at Club Bayview. She'd borrowed her sister's licence to get in, And she'd been to two parties this evening. One was a work function and the other a gathering at a friend's place. She danced and partied the night away and by the end had no money left for a cab home. So she left Club Bayview on foot around 2am to head to a friend's place. It was about a three kilometre walk through Rowe Park to her friend's house and when Lisa was around halfway, she spotted a light coloured work van up ahead. No sooner had Lisa seen the vehicle, was she tackled to the ground from behind by a much larger man who'd emerged from the shadows.
2: The man rolled Lisa over, sat on top of her, and shoved a piece of fabric into her mouth. Then he bound her wrists, picked her up, and carried her back to his van, at which time he shoved a bag over her head and hog-tied her wrists to her ankles. The man, who Lisa ascertained was tall, with dark hair, a light t-shirt and jeans, Told her to shut up before proceeding to drive off and cruise around the streets for what seemed like forever.
1: Eventually, the van stopped and the man dragged Lisa from the back out into the darkness. He took the bag from her head, the gag from her mouth, and began groping her breasts before pulling her shorts down and raping her twice over the following 10 to 15 minutes. He didn't say a word the whole time. When he was done, he picked Lisa up again and dumped her into the bushes nearby before fleeing into the night. Lisa waited five minutes before she moved. She was naked from the waist down, scared for her life, but she also knew she had to make a move. She ran out of the bushes and saw a bunch of gravestones and quickly realised that she was in the Karakata Cemetery.
2: With her hands still bound, Lisa ran and soon found a Salvation Army aged care facility, Panicked and embarrassed, she went to find some help, but no one was there at this time of night. She saw a phone and dialed some numbers with her chin. The receiver dropped and Lisa thought it was futile, but suddenly heard a nurse's voice on the line. She told her what had happened and the nurse said to wait where she was and she'd call the police.
1: Lisa planned to do just that, but soon after, she saw a white van outside the aged care facility, so she fled ran across the road and hid behind a Range Rover, thinking it was her attacker back to finish the job. By this time, Lisa had managed to free her hands from her bindings and call her dad from a nearby payphone via reverse charges. She told him what happened and told him the nearest sign she could see, Hollywood Hospital. Lisa ran inside after the call. Her father was on his way. She was taken care of by a nurse until police arrived, at which point... She was taken in for examination, and an investigation into the crime began.
2: Police made public appeals, talked to people who had attended Club Bayview that night, talked to taxi drivers, and suspicion fell on many of Lisa's male friends and acquaintances who'd interacted with her that evening. All of them gave DNA samples, however, and none matched the sample they had taken from Lisa. A period of six weeks went by, the minimum write-off period – before the case was declared an unclear offense no trace of the offender this rapist wasn't on any database so that was that
1: there were a few more interesting reports from this attack however some that maybe didn't stand out to police at the time but in time would take on new meaning Wayne Wookie a security guard at the hospital was having a smoke outside when he saw a technician's van with a telecom logo on it drive past with its headlights on high beam, coming from the direction of the phone booth where Lisa had phoned her dad. Wayne reported this, but if this was a lead, it didn't lead anywhere for the police. Meanwhile, the attacks continued over the following months.
2: A month later, two teenagers were attacked in nearby Subiaco Street and another teenager assaulted at the railway station. A woman's home was broken into shortly after this. She was raped in bed next to her four-year-old child, and another woman washing dishes saw a flasher outside her kitchen window. Nine months after Lisa's attack, Katrina Jones was walking alone along Stirling Highway. It was early Sunday morning, around 2.30am, and she'd just had a fight with her boyfriend and wasn't particularly in good spirits.
1: She saw a white van up ahead and the driver U-turned and came back to her. The man was good-looking in his early 20s and apparently told Katrina that he was a technician working for Telstra or Telecom and he'd been driving around looking for damsels in distress, like her. He seemed nice and offered Katrina a lift, which she accepted, asking the young man to drive her around 15 kilometres to where her car was parked. He did, and when she went to get out, He grabbed her and tried to kiss her. Katrina backed right off, and so did the young man when she told him that she had a blue belt in taekwondo. This brings us to January 1996, Claremont, a relaxed, safe suburb, ritzy, plenty of buzz and nightlife. People shopped by day and frequented clubs and pubs at night. It was a very popular area for those in their late teens, early 20s and 30s to live it up.
2: 18-year-old Sarah Spears was one of the many who enjoyed what Claremont had to offer and visited many of the shops and venues in the area. Sarah had grown up in the country with her sister Amanda and parents Don and Carol. Don was a shearing contractor and they sent the girls to boarding school, Iona Presentation College in Mossman Park. Sarah was very family-minded, she'd always go out of her way for her sister and parents and she had a very warm, affectionate disposition. She was bubbly, intelligent and had a glistening smile, blonde hair and green eyes.
1: Sarah and Amanda shared a flat in South Perth and their parents often visited from the country. Sarah had attended business school after finishing high school and had gone on to get a job at BSD Consultants in Subiaco. It was Friday the 26th of June 1996, Australia Day, and Sarah and some friends had been planning a picnic dinner at an open-air concert in Kings Park. Wendy Matthews was performing, but they arrived too late and missed most of the show. Amanda joined everyone later on and drove the crew to the Ocean Beach Hotel in Cottesloe. Sarah enjoyed her evening and was picked up around midnight by Amanda, who then drove them to Claremont, where the crew planned to kick on at Club Bayview.
2: Amanda dropped them off in Church Lane next to the club around quarter past 12, hugged and kissed her sister and left for the evening. The plan was for Sarah to catch a taxi home. Amanda would usually pick her up. However, she had been going to uni and working part-time jobs and needed some rest this evening, so that was the plan. Around 1.30am, Sarah told her friend Emma Waits that she was going to call it a night. Emma tried to convince Sarah to stay on but she was done for the night and left somewhere around 2am.
1: On her way out of the club, Sarah talked with two security guards before heading towards a phone booth down the road on the corner of Stirling Road and Sterling Highway. What she was doing was called leapfrogging, going up the road a bit and calling a cab from the phone booth away from the crowds outside the club itself. At 2.06am, Sarah called Swan Taxi Service, noting that she wanted to head to Mosman Park, where her friend's place was, not South Perth, where she lived with Amanda. She crossed Stirling Road and waited on the opposite side when three young men drove past her near the intersection. These three blokes were checking Sarah out and wondering if she was all right, considering she was alone late at night. One of the guys in the front seat, Mark Laidman, noticed she was standing outside the Body Club gym and leaning on a Telstra bollard. The light turned green and the trio continued on, noticing another car coming up behind them as they did. They turned onto the highway, but the car behind them didn't follow. Mark said to his mates, should they go back and see if she's okay? But it was Claremont, safe area. They were sure she'd be fine. She might have known whoever was driving the other car. At 2.09am, the taxi from Swan arrived, driven by a guy named Yaroslav Krupnik. But Sarah wasn't there. Yaroslav travelled up Stirling Highway and stopped at the Stirling Road lights, where Mark and his mates had been only minutes ago. He looked up and saw the phone booth, but didn't see anyone in the vicinity. Thinking little of it, Yaroslav continued on to Club Bayview to pick up another fare.
0: For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com.
2: Amanda saw no sign of her sister on Sunday, which wasn't alarming as she knew it was entirely possible she had gone back to a friend's place. She knew she started at BSD at 8am on Monday morning, so she called her work at quarter past to chat with Sarah, but Sarah wasn't there. Amanda rang her friends, all of whom advised that they hadn't seen Sarah since Friday night. The concern turned to downright worry, and Amanda reported Sarah missing to the police at quarter to nine. Amanda then told her folks. Don and Carol were obviously very concerned, but logically began running through likely scenarios. Maybe Sarah had gone to a friend's or perhaps their family holiday home.
1: But she wasn't at either of those locations. Instead, the Spears found themselves talking to police, making appeals to the public, and walking the streets with family and friends asking if anyone had seen Sarah. 35,000 posters were posted around Perth, alongside a description of Sarah and what she was last seen wearing. She was 163 centimetres tall, or 5 foot 4, with shoulder-length blonde hair, green eyes, medium build, fair complexion, wearing a black denim jacket, Portman's shorts and top, and with distinctive shoes. These were beige with a chunky heel. There were conflicting reports on how the case was initially handled. Some reports noted within 48 hours, the major crime squad had taken over, and they knew this wasn't a missing persons case. Other reports said it was handled very much like a missing persons case for the first two weeks. Either way, Sarah's friends and family were distraught during this time, and many of them just couldn't believe she was missing. They expected her to walk through the door at any moment, and this whole thing would turn out to be some big misunderstanding.
2: But that didn't happen. Instead, the Spears were contacted by a raft of psychics, mediums, and clairvoyants telling Don and Carol graphic tales of what they believed happened to Sarah and where her body was. These all turned out to be fruitless and served to fuel the family's already palpable anguish and exhaustion. Meanwhile, police continued investigating. The second car that had driven down Stirling Road, which the three young males had reported seeing, was still unidentified and no one had come forward to say they were the driver.
1: One recurring tale reported by four local witnesses came from Mosman Park, and all four of these people described hearing high-pitched screams between 2.30 and 3am on the morning Sarah was last seen. This was around the time Sarah could have potentially been there had she been picked up in Claremont just after 2. The high-pitched female scream was described as terrifying and followed by a complete silence thereafter, and one witness reported seeing a car in the area. This was a light-coloured station wagon, not a taxi, this witness said. Yet, taxis became the first port of call for police, as they were frequently buzzing around the streets at these times in this area. This became a focus for police, taxi drivers, in particular fake taxis in the area. These were unbadged, uncharted, guys operating off the books with no radios or metres, Pulling up and giving mostly women lifts in the early mornings.
2: They weren't the only ones doing this. The local Post newspaper released reports about unidentified crawlers, blokes driving around the Claremont area picking up girls, giving them private lifts. Some reported these guys to be pleasant, others said they were creepy. A report made to police back at this time, which unfortunately got lost in the wash amongst the many reports made during this time frame, came from Julianne Johnson, some 24 hours before Sarah was last seen. Julie reported a guy in a Toyota Camry pulled up as she waited for a cab on Stirling Highway in a bus stop. This Camry had a telecom or Telstra logo on the side of the car. The driver leered at her through an open window without speaking for almost 10 minutes before Julie said what and eventually walked off.
1: There was also a lot of conflict at this time between the local council, headed by Mayor Peter Wagers, and the owner of Club Bayview, Dr John Sankin. Dr Sankin alleged the mayor had made his club a scapegoat and made defamatory remarks about the venue. Mayor Wagers, who was a very hands-on mayor, Known to roll up his sleeves and get his hands dirty, said the venue was potentially conducting activities outside what its original application stated and perhaps had some duty of care to its patrons more so than they were providing. He also suggested the venue should contribute towards increased security and police patrols in the area. Wagers himself even undertook nightly mare walks in the district, scouting for the trouble, keeping an ear to the ground, so to speak.
2: Six weeks after Sarah's disappearance, there was another brutal assault outside Club Bayview. A woman was attacked in the early hours of a Sunday morning after leaving the venue. Her head bashed against a wall several times before the bouncers intervened and rescued her. The attacker was never identified. Club Bayview, or Clubber as it was known to locals, continued to be a sore spot in the press as the investigation into Sarah's disappearance continued. But many local youth remained blissfully unaware of the missing girl when approached by local reporters for comment.
1: On the 9th of June 1996, some five months after Sarah's disappearance, 23-year-old Jane Rimmer was planning to head out in the Claremont area with her friends for the evening. She'd had a haircut earlier that day and caught up with her parents for a drink. Now she was going to meet Linda Donovan and some of her other friends at the Ocean Beach Hotel in Cottesloe. Jane was from Shenton Park, some 10 minutes away from Claremont. There she'd grown up with her parents Trevor and Jenny and older siblings Lee and Adam. Jane went to Roselie Primary and then Hollywood High before going on to work with children at Carrington Daycare in Nedlands. This was a career path Jane wanted to follow, working with kids. She even worked as a live-in nanny at one time too.
2: She was described as a fun-loving, spontaneous and bubbly young woman, very caring, and she had a healthy social life with friends. By this time, in June of 1996, Jane was living in a flat in Wembley. Jane had dinner and a few drinks with her friends before they went on to the Continental, Another popular spot in Claremont, usually packed with a boisterous Saturday night crowd. At some stage during their time at this place, Jane became a bit upset and made some disparaging remarks about herself, her friend Linda reported. They went outside to have a chat about it, and as the night went on, they all decided to leave the Continental and head to Club Bayview.
1: Jane wasn't a big fan of Clubber. She didn't really want to go, but her friends were going, so she tagged along. But when the group arrived, the line for the place was huge, spilling out onto the street. This was around 11.30pm by this point. Her friends decided to get a taxi and leave. Jane didn't want to go into Club Bayview, but she also didn't want to go home either. One of her friends later said they thought maybe she was feeling a bit lonely. Whatever the case, Jane tapered off and her friends doubled back in their cab and tried to get her to leave with them, but Jane declined and they parted ways. After this, Jane wasn't seen alive again, except for a shot of her on CCTV. This footage, released by police much later, some 12 years later, showed Jane wearing black boots, a silver watch, a small leather handbag across her shoulder and carrying a dark corduroy jacket. She was waiting outside the club, there's lots of people milling around in the view, all of whom would eventually be interviewed by police, except for one guy they called the Mystery Man.
2: This guy briefly interacts with Jane, she laughs, she seems to be acquainted with him to some extent, but then in the next shot he's no longer there, and we only see the back of him. He had short dark hair with a slim medium build, but this guy never came forward. The CCTV at this time wasn't on a continuous shot, it'd take a snippet and then kind of reboot, which would take 28 seconds, and then recommence another brief shot of the area. A couple of minutes after Jane interacts with this guy, she's standing around and then the shot breaks for 28 seconds and when it resumes, she's gone. There's just a shot of the light pole and an empty road.
1: The next day, Jane didn't arrive for the usual family Sunday lunch. Trevor and Jenny were immediately concerned. They went to Jane's flat to check if she was there. Her Mazda was in the driveway, her keys on the table inside her flat. But Jane wasn't inside and didn't appear to have been home. The Rimmers began frantically ringing friends and family, their concerns growing the entire time, until on Monday morning, their worst fears were confirmed. Jane didn't show up for work, just like Sarah Spears hadn't. She disappeared off the street late one night in Claremont. The rumors reported Jane missing to the Subiaco police, who immediately connected her disappearance with that of Sarah Spears five months earlier. While Jane's family thought she was feisty and would have fought off an attacker, these similarities were hard to ignore. Both girls were Caucasian, similar in appearance, and they'd gone missing in the same area in similar circumstances around the same time of night.
2: Detective Paul Ferguson was put in charge of the newly formed macro task force who were given the job of searching up and down the railway line, interviewing staff in nearby establishments and setting up mobile police caravans to encourage the public to come forward with information. The Rimmer family distributed pictures of Jane to try and jog the public's memory. Posters were plastered all over the area and local papers were distributing them too as handouts within their tabloids. It seemed that no one had seen Jane since her friends last saw her, apart from that snippet of footage that placed her outside of Club Bayview.
1: While police had connected Jane and Sarah's cases, there wasn't agreement within the force if Lisa's sexual assault from Karakata some nine months prior to Sarah's disappearance was connected. There was a lot of division on that. And while it seemed that reports on this phantom telecom or Telstra vehicle were consistently being missed and not linked to one another, this wasn't the case. The Bureau of Criminal Intelligence was looking into potential links with what security guard Wayne Wookie had seen and the report from Julianne Johnson about a technician leering at her one evening. They sent a request to Telstra for a list of drivers, and a list of Telstra drivers they received. What they didn't get was a list of telecom drivers. The telco giant was still in the midst of transitioning to their new brand after some mergers and acquisitions with overseas bodies between 1993 and 95. So there was a bit of confusion around this, different ledgers and subsidiaries, etc. In the end, it didn't lead them to any suspects. On Saturday, the third of August, 1996, 55 days after Jane had gone missing. The Van Ralt family were driving down a road in Wellard, which is south of Perth, some 45 minutes from Claremont. They pulled over with their dog to pick some flowers by the roadside, Arum lilies, which were in bloom after the recent winter rainfall.
2: Tammy, the mum, suddenly spotted something in the grass by the scrub line. At first thought it was a log, but called out to her husband when she realised it wasn't. Tammy stayed while her husband bundled up the kids and the dog and went to the nearby riding school to contact the police. As Tammy waited, a pair of horse riders appeared from the nearby riding school. They had found a wooden-handled knife on the ground further down the road.
1: Police attended and confirmed it was the body of Jane Remmer. She'd been covered with foliage in an attempt to conceal her body, but she hadn't been buried. Her throat had been cut, she had defensive wounds on her hands and arms, and she'd been dragged to this location. Her arm joints were actually dislocated from this. Two local families in Wallard heard screams on the night Jane disappeared, but thought it was a domestic and didn't report it. They'd both carried the guilt of not contacting police that night, as it appeared Jane had been brought to and murdered in
2: the area. The Rimmer family were devastated, grateful for the 23 years they had with Jane, but it was a tragic time for them. The Spears family, meanwhile, held on to the hope that Sarah was still alive someplace, perhaps being held against her will. But police had to consider this area was maybe the serial killer's graveyard. They searched Swampland and Bush in Wallard at length, but didn't find Sarah. Public appeals continued to be made, with police bringing in celebrities, the likes of John Wood and Kate Sobrano, to try and engage the public and get them to come forward with information.
1: Paul Ferguson was very much the face of the investigation, but police kept a tight lid on what they had and didn't have, including the details of this knife discovered by the horse riders. A national manhunt for this serial killer was now being reported on widely in the media, a frenzy ensuing and heightening the feeling that the safe streets of Claremont were no longer safe. Taxi drivers again became the focus of the investigation. Thousands of them were interviewed, their cars searched, those with criminal records questioned at length. This was the police's leading theory at this time, but others were still being considered. Throughout 1995 and 1996, police requested for living witnesses to come forward, anyone who noticed, had interactions or experienced with any telco vehicles driven by solo males throughout Cottesloe and Claremont. Staggeringly, police received a number of reports outlining just that. In late
2: 1996, Annabelle Bushall and Trilby Smith were hitchhiking home from the Ocean Beach Hotel a number of drinks under their belts and thumbing for a ride when a man driving a white vehicle pulled up. Annabelle said it was like a Camry or Commodore station wagon with a Telstra logo on the bonnet. Trilby didn't notice those details. They both got in. The driver was in his 30s with short dark hair and tanned skin. To Annabelle, something just didn't feel right and after feeling what she described as a strong instinct to get out of the car, she jumped out and dragged Trilby with her while they were stopped at some traffic lights in Claremont.
1: Around a similar time, Jane Overoff had been at Club Bayview. She left with two male friends, Will Robinson and Mark Nile, and they were walking home through Row Park after failing to hail a taxi along the highway when they saw a white Holden station wagon, which Jane at first thought was a taxi. She soon realised it wasn't, but the driver, a man in his mid-twenties to early thirties, offered her and her friends a lift home anyway. They accepted, and Jane and her friends were safely delivered home by the man. She described him as having short hair and was in his mid-twenties to early thirties, and the car, interestingly, had a telecom logo on it.
2: Rebecca Morse and Natalie Clements reported a similar experience. After being out one night, they saw a Holden Commodore with a Telstra insignia, that repeatedly slowed down and circled them. At first they thought it was a taxi and tried to hail it, but soon realised it wasn't. When the driver stopped and offered them a lift anyway, they declined.
1: Alongside the earlier reports from Julianne Johnson and Katrina Jones about this phantom driver trawling the streets... There was a strong suggestion that someone working for Telstra or Telecom, or possibly masquerading as a worker for Telstra Telecom, could be involved in what was happening in Claremont. But again, no one from the recently merged telco giant was identified as a suspect at this time. Police had other theories, the prevailing one being it was likely a taxi driver.
2: Nine months later, on Friday the 14th of March 1997, 27-year-old Kira Glennon went to work, after which she had some knock-off drinks with her colleagues in the company boardroom. Then a small group of them headed out to the Continental Hotel in Claremont to kick on. Kira had just returned from travelling overseas, having left in April of 1996 to visit Israel, Greece, Turkey and Ireland. Because of this, she'd missed a lot of the publicity surrounding Sarah Spears and Jane Rimmer's cases.
1: Kira was born in Zambia, Africa. Her parents, Dennis and Una, were Irish and had worked there as missionaries or teachers, some reports said. They came to Australia when Kira was five. A feisty, bright, fun loving, and adventurous kid, Kira learned to speak fluent Japanese, attended Iona Presentation College, and obtained a law degree after she finished school. She returned to her old job at Blake Dawson Waldron and began work on a long-term important case, and was with some of these colleagues, Abigail Davies and Neil Ferris, who she went out with for a few drinks after work. This was around 11pm by the time they headed out.
2: Kira stayed for a short while before grabbing her jacket and leaving the hotel on foot. Presumably, her intention was to get a taxi or hitch a ride home. Kira walked down the Stirling Highway and passed a group of three young lads who were munching burgers outside the nearby Hungry Jacks. One of the three men, Brandon Gray, called out to Kira, saying that she was crazy if she was hitchhiking. She stuck her finger up at him.
1: A few minutes later, one of the other blokes, named Troy Bond, looked down the road and saw Kira talking to someone in a light-coloured vehicle. Brandon later noted this vehicle was a Holden VN Series 1 with distinctive teardrop cutouts on the wheel trims, not usual hubcaps for this vehicle. He was a bit of a Holden fan, I gathered. The next time they looked up from their burgers, Kira and the car had gone. The following morning, Kira's mother Una saw that she hadn't returned home and began the usual calling of friends and work colleagues to see where she might be. Last anyone knew, Kira had left the hotel the night before to head home. When she didn't arrive for a hair appointment, which was actually for her sister's wedding, the panic for the Glennons really set in. Dennis, Kira's dad, was away in Rottnest Island. He returned home quick as you like, and they reported Kira missing to Cottesloe Police Station.
2: Police on the macro task force were instantly notified and frustrated at the report of another missing woman from Claremont. They released a $250,000 reward for information leading to the perpetrator, the largest ever offered in the state at this time. The radio stations began broadcasting safety messages to the public. Dennis made a shattering appeal to the public, with tears streaming down his face. The Glennons, like the Spears, were inundated with calls from strangers, including clairvoyants. And Dennis started a secure community fund – which ultimately raised hundreds of thousands for investigative resources. The Claremont
1: area again came under fire, with the community sentiment being that there was a lack of security and not enough being done to protect people. The Glennons went on the radio, noting they believed Kira was still alive and was being held captive. Nevertheless, police investigating took some of Kira's property for DNA samples should the worst present itself. And unfortunately, it did, just 19 days after she went missing. On April 3rd, 1997, a 24-year-old plasterer named Jason Atkinson was wandering through the scrub near Eglinton on the northern outskirts of Perth. Some reports said he was bushwalking, others said he was scouting for marijuana plants he believed to be in the area.
2: Regardless, he was walking down a sandy track when a foul smell hit him. He wandered into a nearby depression or valley of sorts and saw what he thought at first was a dead kangaroo, but it wasn't, it was a body. Jason ran back down the road to tell his boss, George Kime. He went straight into the office and George said he was as white as a ghost and in shock at what he'd stumbled upon. Police attended the scene and delivered the devastating news to the Glennon family. It was Kira. Her injuries were so severe that police prohibited the family from seeing her body.
1: Kira was face down on her right side with an arm outstretched above her head, similar to Jane Rimmer who was on her left side. Kira too was covered by branches and 50 metres away from a nearby road. Her skirt was hitched up, her underwear and top bloodstained and her shoes and jacket were missing. She had defensive wounds on her arms and hands which were very deep and her throat had also been cut. There were many similarities in Jane and Kira's cases. Both had been positioned in a similar way and had significant neck injuries inflicted with a sharp instrument. They'd been dumped in opposite directions, north and south, but similar distances from central Perth. Forensic testing on debris and Kira's fingernails yielded no results. No foreign DNA profiles were obtained. All the samples were deemed too degraded to test but samples were stored for future re-examination.
2: There was an obvious suggestion, but not forensic evidence, to confirm sexual assault, but due to the time passed, it was very possible any material had simply deteriorated in the elements. Police now confirmed publicly that they were hunting for a serial killer. To this point, it had been media speculation. Many facts were withheld from the public, as police hoped to use it when interviewing suspects. To prevent leaks, there was an unprecedented level of secrecy within the macro task force, with members being unable to talk to even other officers about the case.
1: Criminal profilers Claude Minasini and David Caldwell were engaged to construct a profile of the killer, which would be continually updated throughout the investigation. They said he was organised, planned, controlled, meticulous Enjoyed driving and looked after his vehicle. Most likely, washed and polished it. He worked a job. Was a regular kind of guy who may have been stressed in the time before or after the disappearance slash murders. The sheer volume of information coming in from the public meant police had to look overseas for support. They brought in database technology from the UK to coordinate and prioritise the some fifty thousand calls Crime Stoppers received. Again. The vehicle which stopped and the occupant, who presumably talked with Kira, were unable to be identified despite a request for the driver to come forward.
2: Police again pursued the Telstra lead, faxing them and requesting a list of vehicles, either identifying this Holden Commodore or Toyota Camry station wagon from the number of sightings they'd received. But the list Telstra sent didn't contain such a vehicle. No information about a potential Telstra vehicle was made public at the time, so the living witness project must have either been done covertly or the witnesses called for at a much later date. In fact, the potential Telstra link wasn't even reported in briefings to senior officers. Investigators on the case at the time believed that the hot leads were elsewhere.
1: A taxi driver named Steve Ross came to the attention of police when a passenger made a complaint against him and he declined to partake in voluntary searches of his taxi and provide a saliva sample, as he said it was against his civil liberties. In the end, the complaint turned out to be unsubstantiated, but at the time, with police looking closely at taxi drivers, their suspicion of Steve Ross only grew – he was reluctant to go in for questioning, noting his girlfriend was critically ill at the time, but they insisted the police and during that time Ross's girlfriend actually passed away. But a passenger complaint and decline to participate in searching and testing wasn't the only thing that made Steve Ross interesting to police.
2: After their first visit to him, Ross went to visit a man who we've already talked about, Mayor Peter Wagers. Wagers was also the president of the Council of Civil Liberties at this time and Steve Ross told him some interesting information. Ross said that he'd picked up Sarah Spears in his cab and took her home the night before she disappeared. She was with a really drunk girl and a bloke. Ross was suspicious on the bloke as he had hopped in at the last minute. He thought maybe this guy had done the same thing the following night and it had ended tragically. Peter Wagers heard Steve Ross out and agreed to help him, knowing full well that police already had Ross in their sights. Wagers happened to be Steve Ross's landlord too. He was quite the investor, with over 20 properties at this time apparently.
1: Ross was going to go to the police with this info, but Wagers said inserting himself like this would only further increase their suspicion of him. Ross still went to the police anyhow, and Wagers assisted by organising the interview at his lawyer's office. Soon after this, Peter Wagers received a rather bizarre questionnaire in the mail. It was from the police, and apparently was sent to a number of people, perhaps not as prominent as the mayor. It had a number of interesting and direct questions on it. Did you abduct or murder Sarah Spears? Did you take part in the abduction or murder of Jane Rimmer? should we believe your answers, being a few examples. These were developed by US-based criminologist and former Israeli police officer and had some intention of gathering truths, lies or some kind of insights through answers to these seemingly blunt questions.
2: But Mayor Wagers, who was a child psychologist, refused to answer them, which shone a bit of a spotlight on him. He couldn't understand why he was getting this survey when there were hundreds of thousands of others who didn't. The mayor's refusal was leaked to the media and splashed across all the tabloids, which made things worse for him. Steve Ross, despite his earlier reluctance, now appeared to be trying to help investigators by suggesting they look through records to see where he'd been working and dropping passengers off, etc.
1: But that didn't help him, because now police began to ask the question and formulate the theory, was Steve Ross picking up these girls and delivering them to Mayor Peter Wagers. The mayor was plucked from the street, taken in for questioning, and then delivered home to a swarm of media. Police searched his house and dug up a spot behind his garage after receiving a tip that Sarah Spears' body was buried there. It wasn't. A chicken bone was, but that was it. Mayor Wagers even had a severed cat's head put in his letterbox by someone at some stage. There was a lot of heat on him alongside the back-and-forths regarding safety from the families who'd lost their daughters and John Sankin, who owned Club Bayview. Peter Wagers ultimately lost his next election, he wasn't allowed to work in child psychology anymore and was effectively demoted to a role doing policy review and the like.
2: We're not even sure that Steve Ross actually picked up Sarah Spears the night before or not, but whatever the case... He and Mayor Wagers were eventually forced to give DNA despite them calling it a breach of their civil liberties, and both men were cleared as suspects, but mud sticks and the damage to their reputations, the former mayor in particular, was significant.
1: Lance Williams was a quiet, lonely 40-year-old man who worked for the Department of Main Roads. He'd attempted to take his own life a few times in 1996. He'd also formed a habit of offering lifts to females in the broader Claremont area and he came under police scrutiny after offering a ride to an undercover female officer one evening in 1997. Williams liked to cruise around at night, he lived with his parents and apparently he told these women words to the effect of, they'd never get a bus at this time of night and then offered them lifts. He dropped the undercover officer off down the road 4 or 5 kilometres away without incident Still, police formed the theory that this was the bloke picking up girls late at night.
2: They began to closely surveil Lance Williams, watching him cruise around and circle the area up to 30 times on some occasions. For more than two years, Williams was watched. His home was bugged and searched. He was interviewed six times, administered a lie detector test and gave DNA samples. Williams denied he had anything to do with the Claremont killings, and said he was just being a good Samaritan by offering women lifts at dangerous times.
1: One of the lead investigators was said to have become quite transfixed on Lance Williams being the guy who committed these crimes. But other than him being maybe a tad creepy, lonely and offering these rides, there was nothing connecting him to the crimes. No physical or even circumstantial evidence. His car, for example, wasn't a Camry or Commodore like had been cited but a Mazda hatch of some kind. The media reported Lance Williams as a prime suspect. Police believed him to be so, and it took a huge toll on him and his parents, who he lived with. At one point, his workplace was even bugged, and the surveillance device actually fell out of the ceiling and hung there dangling above his head. Lance Williams, who has since passed away, was eventually dismissed as a suspect, but sometime down the track after the task force was reviewed, and the lead investigator was accused of having tunnel vision.
2: According to the West newspaper, there was also another couple of suspects noted as we headed into the 2000s. Englishman Mark Dixie was named as a suspect in 2006 but would later be ruled out. Dixie had worked as a chef in Perth between 1993 and 1998. He was eventually deported to England after being arrested for a sex offence. In 2005, he brutally raped and murdered an 18-year-old named Sally-Ann Bowman. He was sentenced to life imprisonment with a recommended minimum of 34 years.
1: Fellow Englishman Paul Clare, who lived in Perth for 20 years, was also jailed in Britain in 2006 after raping a 16-year-old girl. He was later cleared of any involvement in Claremont but remains a suspect for a string of sex attacks in Kings Park between 1998 and 1999. Years went on and police were unable to charge anyone, despite publicly linking a number of people. Police were subjected to constant criticism. The macro task force was reviewed 10 times, and each time found to be professionally conducted, using the resources they had available and doing everything they should have. But when overseas experts were called in and the 11th review was conducted, DNA testing had advanced significantly. And it was this which gave police their long-awaited break in the biggest, longest and most expensive investigation ever seen in the state of Western Australia. And we'll get to all of that next episode in part two of Claremont. Your thoughts for now, Chloe.
2: Yeah, I mean, this one is so wild to look back on knowing what we know about it now. I think it's just been so covered by Australian media in particular um, and so many people are so interested in it that it. some of the things seem, you know, hindsight obviously and there was so much work done on it at the time but some of the things that just seem to stand out um in hindsight seems so obvious and obviously they weren't at the time but seeing it all together just laid out in with the breadth of information that's there now um it's just a bit of a wild ride to look at really and obviously horrible heinous crimes and a a real sick predator at play here but um that's pretty much it for me I'm just um reeling a little bit still (laughs) what about you yeah, I
1: was very surprised researching this about the amount of attacks prior to the first disappearance. You know, the mm. obviously and then we've also got the amount of mentions of a Telstra or, or Telecom vehicle which um yeah. you know,
2: uh they, they they were
1: they were mentioned by sources that um, you know, know, know the, to know it to be relevant uh, after the after the fact. So, um, but it's very difficult not to at least mention it. You know, there was a, a lot of mentions of it. It's it's when you see it laid out, it's hard to think how wasn't it sort of put together. But you know, communication mm. between precincts—it wasn't the same back then, was it? You mm. know, as we know, um, and it only takes one one thing to be lost in the wash or reported to a different station. So, uh, yeah, you know, it it, it might seem uh, obvious and uh, to to, <laughs> to some people who know the outcome, but uh, yeah, I thought we should we should at least point that out. But yeah, we'll get to all of that next episode.
2: Yes, well, um, it's been a while since we've done a happy thought, so your Costanza um, brain should be able to come up with a pretty good one this week. Uh, so you can go first. What's your happy thought?
1: Oh, I have many. Obviously, uh, you know our new little addition to the family was great, and yeah, uh, and, and thank you to uh, everyone for your patience and uh, and giving us some time. Uh, but I did write one down here that was that was interesting <laughs> because this is both both my wife and I. Um, I'm stumbled upon this. I'm not. I always like to try limited edition releases of things. You know, whatever it is, like different flavors of chips, coffee, whatever your whatever your your thing is. Um, And but but often they're crap, and that's why they're limited edition. (laughs) They normally taste pretty pretty average. We stumbled across these uh, limited edition uh, packet of Smith's chips. Got these from Aldi, and they were cheese and pickles. I know it sounds a bit a bit bizarre. But it, they were really good. They almost had that taste of like sort of a bit of a burger, like a Macca's burger sort of taste. Yeah, okay. And they were really, like you had one or two and you're like, these are not bad. And then all of a sudden the bag was just empty. And, <laughs> uh, yeah, so they were very addictive. Um, I haven't seen them again since. Um, but oh. please, if, if anyone has experienced the delightfulness <laughs> of these chips or any other recommendations on limited edition flavours, Uh, please let us know.
2: They weren't in my Aldi. I haven't seen that flavour, but I would be up for it. When I didn't know my stomach couldn't handle lactose, I would eat, you know, slice a pickle open and put some tasty cheese on it. That's a good snack. So I can imagine that the chip would be pretty good.
1: Yeah, it was. It was. Hmm, Um, Have you got a food happy thought too or something else?
2: (laughs) Oh, of course I've got a food happy thought. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Mine is simply that... um, Getting Indian for dinner tonight and it's always a good time and I'm pretty excited about it. It's almost dinner time and um, a highlight of the place that we're going to as well, which is often the kind of Indian places you have around, is on the sign for some reason it says... That they're icy and spicy, <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> and I, I can't stop thinking about what they mean by icy. But I'm gonna find out.
1: <laughs> okay, is it, is that like slang for like cool or I don't something? Know. Like is that what they're sort of?
2: Oh. Maybe, but then spicy is obviously related to the food. It's an odd thing and it's yeah. printed on a giant sign on the front of the building. Okay. So they've really committed to the slogan. I mean, it rhymes, I guess, but who yeah, knows? But it may be yeah. irrelevant.
1: Oh, well, look, just judge yeah. them on the food then. Don't worry about the slogan and just see how it's It's run goes. me over
2: though. It, it got me going there. Like, that's part of the reason why I want to go because I think it's pretty funny.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I'll enjoy. Sounds good.
2: Thanks. And. If you want to get in touch with us, you can email us at truebluecrime at gmail.com. You can join our Facebook group, which is called True Blue Crime Podcast, and you can find us on Instagram by searching our name.
1: If you'd like to support the show, you can head over to our Patreon page, the link's in the show notes. Over there you can support the current free content we make on the main feed, get ad-free and early release regular episodes and a swag of bonus content. We'll have another Urban Legends episode coming up very soon. The next episode, part two of Claremont, will be out in two weeks. Episodes will be fortnightly from now on, with the exception of Patreon, which we'll still do every fourth week as per usual. Thanks again for listening, folks, and we'll catch you all again soon.
2: See you soon. Bye.